Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I've been, well, I just snuck out of Turkey under the wire. Let me tell you what I've been up to since I haven't done a podcast in, in about a month. And part of the reason is a lot of the people I wanted to interview said they were interested in being interviewed and then uh, haven't responded to my follow-up emails. So yeah, if I don't have any content to pass along, I'm, I'm not going to really try to force myself to put out a podcast on a weekly basis. Before I get on to the main body of the podcast, I wanted to make a couple observations on what I see taking place in Turkey and what I've seen taking place in Turkey over the last 14 years. Now, Erdogan has been in power uh, for 14 years, which is about as long as I've been in and out of Turkey. Now, I've been in Turkey not a full 14 years, but about 14 years ago, I first entered Turkey. And, of course, I took my boat out for three years while I was sailing Croatia. But during that 14-year period of time, I've had a lot of contact in Turkey. When I first visited Turkey, the country was not doing very well economically. The area of town that I stayed at was called the Sultanahmet area, which is right in downtown near all the tourist attractions that you want to view. The Blue Mosque, the Sultanahmet, the underground cistern, the Spice Bazaar, and the regular bazaar. All were in easy walking distance of the Sultanahmet area. And I stayed at a little hotel down there called the Apricot Hotel. And it was a great hotel at a wonderful price. I think my family and I paid around $30 a night for the hotel, maybe $35 a night. Well, over the years, just looking at the Sultanahmet area, they did some massive public spending to improve the that particular area. New New cobblestone roads were put in. The hotels that were down on their luck were bought out and spruced up. The Apricot Hotel that I stayed at, prices kept going up and up and up and up. And pretty much at some point in time, priced me out of even going down into this area. Now, it's great for the economy. Tourism was booming. But this was a lot of public spending, a lot of deficit spending. In other words, the government printed up money or borrowed money from overseas to do these infrastructure projects. Not only that, the road system was vastly improved. Brand new freeways were being built everywhere you could look at. New airports were being put in. Uh, probably three of the airports that I've flown in over the last 14 years have been totally torn down and rebuilt, or New airports have been put in their place, and the old ones were shut down. And the economy of Turkey has done absolutely tremendous. There's been a huge building boom of chateaus and houses and vacation homes along the coast, which to me is like this ugly blight of what I call sugar cube houses covering the hillsides of the coast now. So there's been massive real estate development, massive borrowing, massive public spending, 
And during my period of time in Turkey, there's been three separate currencies. And I've talked about the devaluation of the Turkish lira over the years and why I don't walk out of the country with really any Turkish lira in my pocket. And I made the mistake this year of coming home with about $100 in Turkish lira, which I thought, oh, I should just turn it in and get my money. But I didn't. And it's going to be devalued substantially by the time I get back. With this coup attempt in Turkey taking place, and I have strong suspicions whether it was a coup attempt or a false flag event, people are not going to be traveling in Turkey. And that was their one bright spot for their economy. Tourism was was the biggest part of their economy, or one of the largest parts of their economy. And that is going to die quickly. I don't see, and, I, and I've predicted this in the past, that they've created themselves a real estate bubble, and the chickens are going to come home to roost at some point in time, and this may be the catalyst for that to occur. With, with Erdogan basically moving the country from a secular state, which was put in place under Ataturk, to an Islamic country, their hopes of joining the EU are pretty much out the window. And the way I look at it, Erdogan is setting himself up to be a dictator of the country with the support of the majority of the people. But he's doing this at a time when a lot of the debts that were put in place to create this massive economic boom under his administration are going to come due. And a lot of those debts were denominated in euros or dollars. And with the decline of the Turkish lira, it's going to be much more difficult or maybe impossible to repay those loans. It'll be interesting to watch it over the next few years. I know this is a podcast about sailing, but when I travel, I'm always observing the economies of other countries because that's part of my job. I just wanted to share those thoughts with you. I hope you find them somewhat informative. If you have comments, drop me a note. I left to head over to the boat on the 28th of June. And if you paid attention to the news on the 28th, you may realize that that was exactly when the attack at Ataturk Airport took place. Well, let me tell you what happened. I I had a flight out from Salt Lake City on Air Canada to Toronto, and then later on in the afternoon, a connecting flight from Toronto directly to Istanbul. And for me, this turned out to be, number one, the least expensive way to get over to Istanbul, and number two, uh, the least time. It was the most direct route. It took the least amount of time for the entire flight. Well, the flight from Salt Lake to Toronto was uneventful. Toronto Airport's a highly efficient, beautiful new airport. And given the choice, I'd rather fly through Toronto any day than JFK, which to me always feels like a third-world airport. Anyway, I arrived there, and I'm sitting in the lounge waiting for my flight to take place, and I go check at the gate, and it's been delayed a couple hours. Oh, okay, no problem. Go back and hang around the lounge a little longer and go back, and it's been delayed even further, and they give us, uh, Air France gives us a voucher to go buy some food somewhere, which was nice. It was good for 22 Canadian dollars. So buy you a nice hamburger at the restaurant there. So as it turns out, they finally canceled the flight due to the airport attack, the bombing attack of Ataturk Airport. So this is the first time something like this has ever happened to me. I wasn't sure what was going to take place. And I'm just glad I was flying on Air France. I hate to say it, but the U.S. airlines have done everything in their power to piss off their customer 
and I'm one of those that's pissed off. And as a general rule, I avoid flying on domestic airlines if I have a choice of flying on a non-domestic airline. In other words, my preferred airline when I'm flying over to the Far East, and it's been Korea, Thailand, and Vietnam, has been Korean Airlines. Also, I've tried Asian Airlines, Asiana Airline, which, which seems to be pretty good when I visited Fiji one time. So when this occurred, when they, when they finally canceled the flight due to the attack at the airport, they said, okay, we'll put you up at a hotel for the night and pay you for your meal tonight. Well, that's pretty damn nice. It's not their fault. It's not their responsibility. But they took it upon themselves to, to put us up for a night, for one night. They weren't willing to do it two nights. But at least for that first night, they were willing to put us up. And then they gave us a direct number to call to try to rebook our flight. Well, so the first night goes by, have a nice meal. And then the hotel they put us up at is a, is a decent hotel. It's not a four-star hotel, but it's probably a good three-star hotel. And it's fairly close to the airport, and there's a shuttle back and forth to the airport from the hotel. So I call up this number, and they rebook my flight out that Friday. And I started looking at my schedule, and my intention this year had really been not to put my boat in the water. My intention this year was to fly over to Istanbul and then catch a flight down to Bodrum, where my boat is, and get some people doing some work on the boat that needs to be done. I needed to have the cheeks replaced on my rudder, uh, I had a few other odds and ends of, of woodworking to do. That Now, I have a great woodworker over there that built my bow sprint, and I was going to have him do some work. And while I was sailing with my friend Neil in Sweden, uh, he would be working on that. And when I returned, I would fly back down to Bodrum, make sure the work was done, and then fly out. That was pretty much my planned summer, and that was going to be about a month. Well, as it turns out, once my flight was delayed, I wasn't able to get to Istanbul in time to get down to Bodrum to get any work started. So when I flew to Istanbul, I was there for one night, and then the next morning I had a flight directly over to Stockholm. So I got to thinking of it while I was sitting there and saying, well, all right, this sort of kills my plans on having work done on my boat. I could have gone back down to Bodrum and hoped that the work would be done in the time I was there, but I just didn't want to bother with it. And I, and I just had a gut feel that told me to get out of Turkey. Uh, and, and I'm a fan of Turkey. I like the Turk people. And you've heard me tell that in many past podcasts. I've, have, I've had so many random acts of kindness in, in Turkey. But I had this gut feel that this was not the year to spend too much time in Turkey. So I rebooked my flight out of Turkey, not on my original date, which was going to be the 27th of July, but on last Friday, the 15th of July. And I stayed at a hotel, which is about mm, maybe 10 minutes away from the airport. So it was a very short cab ride. So it was e easy for me to get a cab from my hotel back to the airport relatively quickly. So anyway, I fly back on the night of the 14th from Sweden and I spend one night in the hotel. And then the next morning I'm out of there and back to the hotel to catch my flight back to the United States, which as I recall, left at... 11.45, and again, this flight was Air Canada, and the flight was from Istanbul to Toronto, and then Toronto to Salt Lake. And of course, coming back, it's all done in one day. Going over, you lose a day going over, but coming back, it's a real long day, but it's all done in one day. So I get on the flight, and I arrive in Toronto, and I pull up the news, and lo and behold, there's a coup attempt taking place in Turkey, and the airport is closed. 
the airport, as I understand it, is now open again, but people that had planned on flying back just maybe two or three hours after I was flying back were, were stopped. They shut down the airport, and it was closed for a couple days at that point in time. So I snuck out under the gun, and I got in right after the airport attack. And since I was one of the first flights to arrive after they opened the airport up, I decided to take a look and see what damage I saw. And the Turks had done a tremendous job of pretty much covering up all the damage that was done. They'd put sheets over the bullet holes. There were a few glasses that still had bullet holes in them. And I'm very familiar with the airport since I've been in and out of it so many times. Uh, And there was some damage down in the arrival area as well. The arrival area, which I didn't think the news media covered much, there was some definite damage done down in the arrival area. In fact, more visible damage in the arrival area than in the departure area. But they'd done a pretty good job of covering it up. You had to go and look for it. Now, my flights were on back and forth between Istanbul and Bodrum were on Turkish Air. And since I decided to cancel my flights back and forth to Turkish Air, even though the tickets I bought were non-refundable, I went to the desk in Istanbul, and they refunded all my money for those tickets. So they took pretty pretty good care of me, in my opinion, on that as well. So anyway, let me talk just a little bit about what Neil and I did in Stockholm. And then Neil and I will do another podcast later on and talk a lot more in detail about our trip there. Well, I arrived in Stockholm on July 1st. Neil met me at the airport, and we took the Flig bus, I think it's called the Flig bus, in from the airport nice modern bus, and it's the least expensive way to get from the airport into the center of Stockholm. We spent the night on the boat, and we stayed at a marina that's very close to the amusement park in downtown Stockholm and very close to the Nordic Museum in downtown Stockholm. Very good location, nice marina, good facilities. We spent one night there, and the next morning we we headed off. And we had to do a bunch of grocery shopping ahead of time, and so we really didn't get out of there till around, oh, I think around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And as we leave the marina, we go out to try to head out, and we're stopped by a committee boat for a regatta that's going on. And they say, we have to wait, we have to wait. And they said, oh, another two hours. And we're saying, that's nonsense. But we wait about another half hour, and we say, well, let's just try to go down. And, and we do. We, follow, we basically follow the regatta out to their final point. And during the next, I guess it was about, I arrived on the 2nd and I flew out on the 14th of July. So what is that, 12 days? 12 days. So through the next 12 days, we visited a lot of islands in the Swedish archipelago. The temperature was in the evening enough that you needed to have a jacket and a sleeping bag. And during the day, you might wear a jacket, you might wear, as a general rule, we were wearing long pants, but there were a few days where we had short pants on. But the temperature was much cooler than I'm used to dealing with in the summer being in the Mediterranean. And so I was glad I'd taken enough clothes that I was able to be relatively comfortable. We had to buy a new sleeping bag for me because I thought Neil had an extra sleeping bag on board and he didn't. So we ended up going and buying a sleeping bag and and I was glad I had that sleeping bag. The sleeping bag would have been too warm for my boat, but it was perfect for Neil's boat. And it was just an inexpensive, I think, $30, $40 sleeping bag that we got at a sporting goods store. And that was part of the reason we were delayed, because there weren't very many sporting goods stores that were open. And that was a Sunday that we picked it up. So we wandered around Stockholm before we took off. And then we spent oh, about 12 days sailing through the archipelago. 
And I'm just going to give you my general observations. Very, very green, low-lying islands, not mountainous islands at all. You'll see large mountainous islands up in the, Brit- the British Columbia area or taller islands, but the Swedish archipelago is, is relatively low-lying islands. They're all covered with thick forest as a general rule, and there's exceptions to that. And the one exception I would say to that, that we visited a group of islands called Huvudskar, which to me was actually one of the highlights of the trip. You really felt like you were way out there. The islands are all inhabited, and inhabited quite densely, which sort of surprised me. Not dense in a, in a um, high-density idea, but, but much more dense than I would see up in the British Columbia Islands. Almost every island had four or five houses on it, and most of the houses had their own docks, and quite often on the docks they had saunas out there so they could go in, heat up the sauna, take their sauna and jump in the water and then come back in and, and warm back up in the sauna again. The people were very, very friendly. It is a very prosperous country. For being a socialist country, people seem to be doing pretty damn good. I didn't see really any poverty, with the exception I did see a couple homeless people, one near the bus station in downtown Stockholm and another one also in that same general area, but not anywhere to the extent that I see homeless people in Salt Lake City or in the United States. I really enjoyed the archipelago. It's relatively flat waters. You, most of the places don't have enough fetch to really build up any waves. I taught Neil that you go with the winds. You don't f- try to fight into the winds. So when the winds were blowing against us, we just changed our itinerary to go to a different location so we would be on a broad reach or a downwind run. So we had some great sails. Neil got to know his boat much better. And this boat is the boat that Andy Shell used to own called Octurus, very well-built boat, heavy-duty boat. It'll last Neil for as long as he wants to be sailing it over there. And I thought it's kind of interesting. A year ago, Neil and Jack Andrews were sailing with me on my boat in Greece and Turkey, and both of them in that next year have both bought their own cruising boats and are out sailing. While Neil and I were sailing on my boat, Jack launched his boat. I think it's over in Slovenia that he launched his boat. He bought a boat, a 40-foot, I think it was a 40-foot Bavaria 40 or 45. That's what it is. And I'll get Jack on the podcast to talk about his summer at some point in time. And then the next thing I hear is he's back at the marina and being lifted out to replace a propeller. So there's going to be a story there to find out what he's doing. But anyway, it's kind of neat that both people that I took sailing last year are now out sailing their own boats on their own. And Jack invited me out for seven days, but I didn't have the opportunity to go sailing with him this year. And, and I'd like to do that with him at some point in time in the future. But right now, I've got to deal with my boat in Turkey and my plans for next summer. I'm already in negotiations with marinas on where I'm going to be moving my boat to, and I haven't decided yet. So I'll be doing that. I did get a review on the podcast, a couple of reviews since I talked to you last time. Let me read them to you. One was on June 27th, and it's by Musitba, anyway, M-U-S-I-T-S-B. Franz is a great storyteller and knows how to get his guests to tell their stories. Franz has raised his game with the guests he now is able to attract. The early shows were just about Franz and his adventures in the Med. 
with the addition of his guest. It really expands the value of his podcast. I've listened to every one and have learned something from each. Highly recommended. Bella. Okay, Bella, thank you. Yeah, and I've, I've tried to reach out to a bunch of new guests. They've always responded positively, and then when I follow up, I don't seem to be getting uh, uh, responses. So I'm not sure exactly uh, if it's just a lack of time or a discomfort with talking in a microphone. I don't know what it is. But if you have suggestions for people that I should be interviewing, please pass them along. I would really appreciate it. And the next was a review by RB1685. RB1685 on July 7th wrote, I really like Franz's narrative and interviewing styling and hearing about the med is interesting and hearing about the med is interesting contrast to the rest of the topics, sailing topics. So I think what he meant to say is it's a contrast to the rest of the sailing topics. I really enjoy the interview with Brian Toss, one of my favorite figures in the sailing world. The only thing I don't like is the slamming of the gate in the introductory soundbite. I listen to podcasts exclusively on my headphones, and that sound shatters my eardrums every time. All right. Well, I did turn down, and you might have noticed it, I did turn down the volume on the gate closing, but I'm not going to eliminate it from the podcast. But I did lower the decibels. I lowered it three decibels. and Hopefully that'll help you. Anyway, I appreciate you writing those reviews. I really appreciate the people that take the time to write the reviews. And if you have suggestions, please get a hold of me, franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Last thing I want to do before I close out this podcast is that if you're trying to learn to sail, I have a series of audio lessons available at the website to help you prepare for the ASA 101, the 103, and the 104 series of exams. If you're just starting out sailing, I have eight free audio lessons if you sign up for my mailing list by going to the website medsailor.com. That's half of the ASA 101 series of lessons. So there's 16 lessons in the ASA 101. You can listen to half of them for free, which will get you through a lot of the terminology and a few of the other things you really need to know before you even get on a boat. So let me suggest you take a look at that. And again, I look forward to hearing from my listeners. If you have suggestions, please write me. And that's going to be it for this podcast. Thanks for listening. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joel. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know?